Welcome to Sedaris. Go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to begin our time of teaching. How are you doing on this fine September? I think now is the week that we can start asking each other, how's your summer been? How, how was your summer? You know, because it's, it's feeling like we're hitting fall pretty hard. Where we're going into fall. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new with us, I see some new faces. Welcome. We're so glad that you are here checking us out. We're here each and every Sunday. So, uh, yeah. Let me bring you up to speed. If you're new with us or if you've actually missed church the past couple weeks, let me bring you up to speed with what we're doing during our times of teaching on Sunday mornings. Um, we are in a, a teaching series that we do every single year here at Sedaris, and that teaching series is called The Bigger, Better Conversations. Bigger, better conversations. Uh, conversations are a, oh, that's the first time I've ever seen a plane fly over. Wow, I was up here. It's kind of fun. Um, bigger uh, conversations are what we're all about here at Sedaris Church. You just had a four-minute conversation, um, which people are usually skeptical of, and they experience it, and they're like, wait, that was great, because we really believe that bigger and better conversations are really what drive uh, life and uh, really what drive relationship, drive life, and ultimately drive consideration of Jesus. This is kind of a big statement, but without bigger and better conversations, consideration of Jesus can't find a home. It can't find a home. Just, just let that sink in. Without conversation, consideration of Jesus can't find a home. And so each and every year we do this sermon series. Usually we, we start with the Bible and we'll work through a passage because we'll, we, we firmly believe that the Bible is that which heals and empowers humanity uh, towards God's mission in the world. So we usually do that. But every year we take a step back and we say, wait, hold on a sec. Let's talk about how to have bigger and better conversations in the city. And uh, we do that because there's a reality that goes something like this. Let's put that first slide up here, Augusta. Oh, look at that. You see that? Does anybody know what this is? What this is? Anybody recognize this drink? Anybody? Anybody? Allie Jones. Bingo. Red Robin's Freckled Lemonade. This is why we uh, focus on bigger and better conversations. Red Robin's Freckled Lemonade. The, the princess drink, you could say, of Red Robin, much like the princess drink of, uh, I guess, Red Lobster would be the Lobsterita. If you ever, I don't know. I've, I, we, this is why we're doing this today. This Freckled Lemonade. Now, now you see what's going on here, right? What, what's happening here? If we just look at it, maybe you've experienced it at Red Robin, a Seattle uh, native corporation. All the good stuff is right there on the bottom, right? There's, uh, if you've ever had it, there's a sticky goodness on the bottom that's most likely high fructose corn syrup, artificial flavoring, sliced strawberries. Those all live in the bottom of the glass of a, a glass of freckled lemonade. And really, uh, that's a problem, right? Because the rest of this drink, look at it. It's so sad. It's so unhappy. It's so deficient and lacking. And, and the rest of the drink needs that goodness in the bottom, okay? And so there's a problem there. Red Robins, they know it's a problem, so they've given you an instrument to solve your problem, the straw, the straw, okay? And so in this metaphor, the straw is bigger and better conversations. Bigger and better conversations in our city stir up Jesus, that's the sticky goodness, or you could say consideration of Jesus, that's the sticky goodness, in the hopes that it can extend to more and more corners of our city, 
And so we're really focusing on how this straw can stir up bigger and better conversations because we think that when Jesus enters enters conversations as another alternative for how to live life, no matter what you're talking about, love, work, um, family, when Jesus enters that conversation, we think that eventually uh, that truth is going to rise to the top. and It's going to be those strawberries that eventually come to the top and you can pluck off and eat. Because you can't suck up a strawberry. You've got to stir it up so you can get it to the top. Okay, so we just think that conversations are that which gets Jesus into this culture. So in the hopes that all of our culture can be a happy society. Okay, just like this drink can be a happy one. Okay, that was a little bit silly, but that's kind of what we do here at Stairs. So, okay. So that is the the freckled lemonade, okay? That's why we have this series every year. Our goal is to equip you guys to have bigger and better conversations in this city. Um, We might think that that starts by Dave and I kind of being up here on the stage and that we're the ones having conversations with our city. And we do do that in our personal lives. This actually isn't that. This isn't the stirring straw. This is really designed to be a time where we empower you guys, we equip you guys to go out into our city and have bigger and better conversations so that our city can come to encounter Jesus and hopefully experience life, okay? Now, our quest this year, in our quest this year, we are going through a book for four weeks. Uh, It's this book right here. It's called Habits of the Heart. Habits of the Heart. Um, What is this book? Habits of the Heart is uh, a multi-year, it's the product of a multi-year research project where uh, six uh, sociologists, philosophers, and uh, academics, professors, they got together and asked one question. What makes Americans tick? What makes us tick as American people? What actually is driving us? What's motivating us? And, and what they found through hundreds and hundreds of, um, of interviews that they had with people, amounting to thousands of hours of interviews, what they found is that what drives Americans is something called individualism. Individualism is what is driving, um, uh, is what driving our culture, and more so, we're actually in this form of radical individualism, is what they argue. Okay, so, so individualism, it started, um, it really started when the, the Puritan founders of America showed up uh, back in the 16th, 17th century, and, and they came from England to establish a new independent and free society. They wanted to begin their lives afresh somewhere else. They wanted to realize their own success. They wanted to define their own morality. They wanted to worship how they wanted to worship. So they came to America. It's funny. This is what we do in our lives. Everybody goes through this season of their life where they leave everything behind. They, they leave their family. They, they leave that which they were grown up in. They want to strive for ways to identify their own morality, own morality, ways to worship God on their own. Everybody goes through this thing of leaving family to figure all this stuff out on their own. And we kind of think we're really novel for doing this. But in reality, this, is what, this process started at Plymouth Rock. When the first founders got here, they came here to realize their own independent future. This is part of what it means to be an American. This is our DNA. And so we're actually not novel in this, and Dave actually devoted a whole sermon to that last week, which is great. and, but this is the attitude that flowed through the early American intellectuals, like Walt Whitman, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, these guys were transcendentalists, very individualistic. It channeled through the founders, our founding fathers, like Benjamin Franklin. He's the one that coined the term individualism. 
This is how American this notion is. Benjamin Franklin thought up this word, okay? Uh, him and Thomas Jefferson, they wrote it into the, um, the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. They wrote this. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal. They're all endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, here the individualism, and the pursuit of happiness, and this individualism, don't, don't hear me wrong, um, that continues to this day, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Individualism isn't a bad thing. That we have the freedom to worship and act in ways that our conscience guides us. Um, that we have this fundamental understanding that I have responsibility for my actions in the world. That's a really good thing that we can have. But what these authors have noticed, what these editors, sociologists, academics observed, is that when this individualism becomes completely untethered from the, what they call the societal mores, or those are the guiding, principle, guiding principles, communal guiding principles of society that our founders had, these would be things like religion and civic responsi responsibility to the republic. When our individualism becomes separated from those, it morphs into something dangerous. You could even call it a radicalization of individualism. It's dangerous, it's a sickness, and it's something that we've all been born into, is what they argue. And we've unpacked this over the past couple of weeks. You need to go back and listen to it if you haven't been able to be with us. Um, David likened this reality um, to something that we've been born into. He likened it to a time when he was locked in the bathroom as a child. And, and his parents didn't, didn't lock him there. He actually just went into the bathroom to use it. And uh, to get out, he actually tried to open the door that was the janitor's closet instead of the door he came in. All of a sudden, panic overwhelmed him. He was trapped. Panic, insecurity, uncertainty, angst. These are the emotions we experience in this society. And maybe it's not necessarily the things that we do, but maybe it's because we're trapped in the bathroom of radical individualism. And so this sermon series on bigger and better conversations is really designed to help us understand what, what is our culture in? What bathroom are we in? So we can talk about it with people and then provide us the answers, uh, which they don't do in, in this book, but hopefully provide us some, some, <clears throat> excuse me, some ways that we can open, find the door and get out of the bathroom and get away from this angsty, insecure, uncertain experience that we have, especially here in Seattle, okay? So that's what we're up to, okay, um, each and every Sunday morning. Last week I said that we, we looked at how the sickness of radical individualism, it impacts how we think about leaving home, finding ourselves. I just talked about that a little bit. Today we're examining how these authors found that we conceive of love and marriage. Love and marriage. This is a big, uh, big, big topic, and uh, we're examining what, it, what, they, what they found because never before have we been in a society that experiences heartbreak on such a significant level. Never before have we um, attached ourselves and torn, it apart, torn, torn ourselves apart from people so many times throughout our lives, throughout our relationships, and this leads to a lot of uh, rawness, this leads to a lot of hurt. Uh, many would even term their relationships as traumatic in society, and so this is a big topic that there's a lot of pain here. A lot of angst here, a lot of anxiety, uncertainty, insecurity about, and perhaps it's because 
our culture of radical individualism has greatly influenced how we think about love to begin with. And so today we're going to unpack what they say about love and marriage, how we conceive of it, so that hopefully we can find some answers, some ways forward, so we can deal with it, okay? All right. So, so let's dive in here. Um, radical individuals in love and marriage. Usually when churches talk about this, they devote uh, six, eight weeks of a sermon series to it. We got whatever's left of this sermon. So uh, buckle up. This is going to be a wild ride, guys. <laughs> and, and what we're going to do is we're actually going to talk about love more broadly than marriage itself um, because how we conceive of love really drives how we view and how we use or how we enter into marriage, okay? It's a big topic. How do we love as American individuals? Okay, well, there's a simple part to it, and there's a complicated part to it, okay? First, uh, the simple part. Um, These sociologists pointed out that in 1985, that almost 100% of Americans um, agree that love is the basis of an enduring relationship. Love is the basis of an enduring relationship. And they almost all share the ideal of two people sharing a life and a home together. So this was 30 years ago, and just for sake of argument today, we're going to kind of assume that's generally true for our, our, our culture as well, that love is the basis for an enduring relationship, so we all kind of believe that, and we all kind of have this picture of two people sharing a life and a home together throughout their lives, okay? That, that is part of, you could say, living a full life in the world, okay? Now for the complicated piece, okay? These, these guys and, and, and women they uncover that even though Americans share these broad desires of love um, in a committed relationship over the course of their lives, that not all their attitudes towards love are the same. Shocker, right? I just told you something you already know, that that we conceive of love very differently uh, in America. After all, we're individualists, right? But what's helpful here is that they pointed to the fact that there are two broad streams of thought or two broad attitudes that Americans generally have when it comes to love, okay? And we're going to put them on the screen for you here. This is how they talk about them. All right. It says, Americans are torn between love as an expression of spontaneous inner freedom and a deeply personal but necessarily somewhat arbitrary choice. That's the first one, that love is an expression, an emotional experience of freedom. And then the second one, and the image of love as a firmly planted permanent commitment, embodying obligations that transcend the immediate feelings or wishes of the partners in a love relationship. Okay, so, so here on the other side of things, people really conceive of love in this broad category. Their attitude towards love is that love is a commitment. It is, there's duties associated with, them, or with it. There's obligations associated with it. And, and that, so we have two, these two broad streams. And you're probably thinking right now, why can't it just be both? I kind of think both of those are true in a loving relationship, right? And in some sense, the people that they, they say they interviewed, they, they do kind of have a foot in both camp, camps in some regard. But what they would say is that everybody tends to lean one way or lean the other way. And based on which way you lean, whether love as emotion, relational experience, or love as commitment, that's going to vastly change the decisions that you make throughout your life with regards to your partners and love and uh, responsibility. Okay, so there's these two broad streams, streams, and all of us fall on one side or the other. 
Okay? They called these attitudes the, the obligation attitude, the traditional form of love, and they called this emotional experience attitude uh, the therapeutic uh, attitude. And, and so over here on the, um, the, the, the love as a therapeutic one, looks over to love as a commitment and says, hey, there's no compulsion in love. You can't force yourself to love someone. And in reply, the, the love as an obligation or the traditional form of love uh, looks to the, the first and says, love is deeper than an experience or a set of thrilling experiences. These two are really in tension with each other. And our, our, our authors describe these attitudes as such, okay? So we're going to unpack them together. Uh, stick with me. Uh, these sermons feel like more, they feel more like academic lectures than actual sermons. And so if you're like, whoa, this is really heady stuff, that's okay. We'll kind of come back and we'll wrap it all together here. But we're going to unpack what these two attitudes, these broad streams towards love actually are, okay? The first one is the traditional uh, attitude towards love. And that's, and that's the attitude that sees love as commitment obligation, duty, and it's really embodied by this guy named Les Newman, who they illustrated in the book. Uh, Les put it like this. Sorry about the light, guys. Um, okay. Describing his marriage, he says, he, he's a young businessman, Les. Before I thought it was all about heart, all chemistry. Now I know that chemistry may be a good start, but the only thing that makes it real love that will endure and the kind of love that is taken into marriages is that mental decision that you're going to force that chemical reaction to keep going with each other. I think real love is something where there is that chemistry, but there's also that mental decision. You see that? Chemistry versus decision. That there's going to be a conscious effort for two people to do what's best instead of what's best for one individual. So this was the traditional view of love in 1985. That's when this book was published. This is the view that, that no matter what's going on, love means that you're going to stick through it with someone through thick and thin. Now, now, this was the view of marriage for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years in America, to love someone was to be committed to that person. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no romantic love like Les described here, that heart and chemistry are still there, but they just take a back seat, it seems. And our academics noted that all the respondents who talked about love in this way were Christians, okay? All right, so let's go over to the therapeutic attitude here. And in order to really go into it, we have to acknowledge that... Um, the therapeutic uh, attitude towards love, love as experience, love as open sharing, um, it really bursted onto the scene in the 19th century. It's 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It bursted onto the scene with a bang, and we have to understand why that happened. You see, it emerged because a generation, these guys are interviewing people in the 80s, so our parents, or maybe a little bit before our parents, um, they looked at their parents' marriages, they looked at their grandparents' marriages, and they saw something very, very troubling. They looked at their, their parents' marriages, they looked at their grandparents' marriages, which were of the traditional um, ire, and they said, hold on, they're not communicating. <laughs> they're not talking with each other. Hold on, they're not openly um, admitting that they have some serious problems going on in their marriages. H hold on, there seems to be like a resigned fatalism that is stuck to this marriage, and we don't like it. 
And uh, the editor said, it's so interesting to see these people process uh, their parents' marriages because on one level, they like the commitment, but on the other level, they're like, not if it looks like that. So this is largely a reaction against uh, what traditional marriage came to be in the United States. And, and it's, it's 30 years later, but with those of us who have seen or experienced traditional marriages, I mean, they're still out there, and many of us still see them. We still experience them. In Seattle, if you see those, you're, you're suspicious. <laughs> and it's okay. There's no easy way to say it. You're just kind of suspicious of it. It's, it's kind of like, oh, wait, I think they're highlighting obligation over other things. I'm going to pull out my magnifying glass and really examine what's going on there because we suspect that there's not open communication. We think that there's likely a resigned fatalism. We, we, like, we think, you know what? One partner is probably getting dominated in this relationship because that's what has been observed in traditional marriages for a long time. So we're, we're naturally suspicious of this, okay? And uh, that's okay. We're, we're like those, the, our parents' generation in that way. Um, but the, the therapeutic attitude towards love seeks to amend these ills of the traditional marriage, what the traditional marriage came to be in, in large swaths of culture. Now, they, these guys call it um, the traditional or the therapeutic attitude because it closely aligns with the general notions of therapy. That is uh, therapy of the 80s, not so much today. Therapy's kind of developed out and broadened out a little bit more uh, up to today. There's plenty of counselors here in the room who will say this after I describe it. But therapy back in the 70s and 80s was really all about building self-confidence. Uh, self-confidence. This is where the book I'm Okay, You're Okay comes from, very famous book from the late 60s. Um, and then also open communications of one need, uh, of someone's needs. So therapy was all about helping people feel okay about themselves and helping them communicate what they needed. Okay, and this comes out very uniquely in, uh, in, these, in these conversations they had with people when they had conversations with therapists, actually, with therapists. Um, and so let's throw up some of these conversations on the, the screen here. As the therapist Margaret puts it, many of the professionally trained, upper-middle-class young adults who come to her, depressed and lonely, are seeking that big relationship in the sky, the perfect person. They want that one person who's going to stop making them feel alone. This is 1985. I think this is largely what our culture does as well. This still happens. But Margaret concludes, this search for a perfect relationship cannot succeed because it comes from a self that's not full and self-sustaining. The desire for relatedness is really a reflection of incompleteness of one's own dependent needs. Before one can love others, one must learn to love one's self. So this is, this is the general attitude that therapy took in the 70s, 80s, you could even say 90s. Uh, it's represented in this next uh, comment from a therapist. There's nobody once you leave your parents who can just say, you're okay with us no matter what you do. I'm willing to be a mother to validate them. And then again, next one. I work by just giving them lots of positive reinforcement in their selves, continually over and over again. Next one. Ultimately, I think people want to know that they're okay, and they're looking for someone to tell them that, but I think what's really needed is to be able to have themselves say that I, Richard, am okay personally. What people really need is self-validation, and once people can admit that, they're okay. Somehow they get miraculously better. And so therapy is really geared towards building self-confidence in people. 
Needing others in order to feel okay about oneself was the, the general malady that therapy was seeking to cure then, and largely now as well. And, and so now this is what that leads to. People are primarily entering relationships with the notion that they'll be okay without the other person which is healthy on one level, because after a few dates, you want to be able to cut things off and not be just a, a wreck, right? But what's interesting is as they interviewed married couples, this notion was persisting long time in the marriage relationship. After several years, there's still this notion that couples were holding on to, like, but if this person leaves, I'll be okay without them. This is what the thera therapeutic self-confidence movement did. Okay? Now, now, the second part of this therapeutic attitude is highlighted in Melinda's experience. When Melinda feared she was losing herself in the early years of her marriage, she went to a marriage counselor who taught her to assert what she wanted rather than always deferring to her husband's wishes. That's probably good, generally. She came to feel that only by becoming more independent she could really love or be loved by her husband. For Melinda, the ideal of love changed from sacrifice to self-assertion. The better I feel about myself, I feel I have a whole lot that I can contribute to Thomas. Being in love one day can mean like being selfish. I mean doing something just for yourself. So what Melinda found was that when she did not openly and vocally communicate her needs, her wants, her desires in a relationship that she began to lose herself in the relationship. And do you see how she attached it was she lost the ability of not just to lose herself, but to love and receive loved. And therapy tells us that when we often ail in relationship, we're we're uncomfortable in relationships because we haven't fully voiced what we need in a relationship, that in relationships we need to be more selfish. And this is what the therapeutic angle tried to, to, to rectify. Okay, so the therapeutic attitude pulls both of these together and something happens when both of these come together, okay? First, we enter relationships and continue in relationships telling ourselves we'll be okay without the other person. And then second, in those relationships, the highest priority is that we're open and honest in expressing our desires and our needs. And what happens when we say that I'm okay without you is we actually release the other person from obligation and from duty. But ironically, the next step in the therapeutic notion of love is to express our desires and our needs in a relationship this means that we self-confidently go from person to person, expressing our needs and our desires, and when it becomes evident that the other person cannot or will not fulfill them, we swipe left. We swipe left. We move to another relationship, and another relationship, and another marriage, and another marriage. Now, this is what's been indoctrinated into us, and this is where the notion of soulmates comes from. This idea that there's one person for another person or that we hope that that's true comes from this very notion. It's, it's new within the last 50 years. We hope that there's someone out there who will listen to all of our desires and wants and actually wants to do them voluntarily. And at the same time, the opposite has to be true, that we hope their list of needs and wants are the exact things that we voluntarily want to give because there's no duty and obligation and love because we're okay without each other. 
This is what all of the relationships in Hollywood look like. Have you noticed that? Everything that the woman wants or the man wants is exactly what the, the, their counterpart wants to be for them. It's fiction. It's largely fiction. This thing does not exist. And our sociologists tell us this about the thera this therapeutic notion on this slide here. In its pure form, the therapeutic attitude denies all forms of obligation and commitment in relationships, replacing them only with the ideal of full, open, honest communication among self-actualized individuals. Like the classic obligation of client to therapist, the only requirement for the therapeutically liberated lover is to share his or her feelings and needs with their partner. All right. So remember, this is 1985. This is 33 years ago. We have 33 years of this attitude of love working itself out. In the last three decades, uh, relationships have never been more insecure They've never been broken up more often. They've never been more uncertain. And so I would say that, that the, I think we're ready for something else. I think as a culture, we saw that traditional love was breaking down, and so we, we swung the pendulum and we decided to find something else that we could hold on to and grasp, that, that we ran away from obligation, but in order to make that work, we had to be honest about our, our needs at the same time, which created these fantasy relationships that we were all hoping to come across, but we never did. And when we thought we did, then we realized that we didn't, and so we had to tear apart. And so this is bonding and breaking and bonding and breaking and bonding and breaking. We have a culture and an epidemic of broken hearts is what we have. No society has ever experienced this before, ever. The human soul can only go through that agony and pain and trauma so many times. That's the reality of it. We've, our radical individualism has pushed us into areas that uh, are, are, it's a sickness for us. It's dangerous for us. It's a sickness. So how do we solve this dilemma of traditional and therapeutic? How do we solve this dilemma of commitment and emotional desire? All right, I got, I got a few points for us here, okay? This is where we're going to move. We're going to shift away from what these guys are saying. We're going we're gonna to try to get out of this bathroom of radical individualism when it comes to love, okay? Point one is we can't pit desire against duty, we, we can't pit desire against duty. We just can't do it. What's interesting is our experiences with love. Anybody who's been in a loving relationship knows this about love. At the height of passion, at the height of experiences, maybe you've gone on a great vacation, maybe you're big into parasailing, hiking, something. But at the height of those passionate moments that you've had with your lover, you look at them, and you not only look at them if you've been loving them for a long time and say, I love you, you look at them and you say things like, I will always love you. Even the, the therapeutically inclined in these heightened moments of passion make vows when love is most present. Now this is very, very interesting. This is very interesting. This means that love, there's something very unique about love and that it instinctively inspires us to permanence when we experience it with another person. And it's more than just a, oh, I hope this feeling never fades. There's this element of, we are permanently linked together, that, that we're starting to attach in some really significant ways. And so I think all of us can really say 
that perhaps duty and emotion are much more intertwined than maybe even we're comfortable with. Oftentimes, this can scare us. People can be surprised by how attached they're becoming to someone after they've been in a loving relationship. And, and their tendency is to fear the obligation, fear the, du- the duty, pump the brakes or hit the eject button and just get the heck out of there. We're scared of this. So that's, that's the first point. You could actually have a, a bigger and better conversation about that with just about anybody in the city, right? Like, <laughs> what, why do we make promises to each other when we love one another? Even if the relationship isn't like been going, been going for that long, but the love is really intimate. I mean, that's a great conversation to have. Okay, point two is the only way for us to be free is to act from obligation. The only way for us to be free is to act from obligation. Okay, this is a big statement. This is a philosophical statement, and I ripped it from a philosopher, okay? Okay, uh, this is from philosopher and existentialist, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Um, Don't believe everything he says, but we can believe this. He's pretty good on this stuff. Soren Kierkegaard's pretty good on this stuff. What he said was that individuals, he categorized them broadly as three categories. Okay, you ready for them? One is the aesthetic, aesthetics. The second one is the religious, and the third is the ethical. Now, he has different definitions of these uh, back then that we couldn't even wrap our heads around, and we're only going to deal with the first one, though, the aesthetics. Soren Kierkegaard uh, posited that everybody starts in this aesthetic phase in life. This is the phase where we're uh, focused and driven by aesthetics, things outside of us. Uh, We we, want to be interested in things, we want to be fascinated by things, and whatever is most interesting and most fascinating will run after that in life. I have two aesthetics, they're they're two years old and five year old in my house right now. Every day, whatever's most interesting and most fascinating, that's what they run after, okay? This is what an aesthetic is. Um, They're driven by their temperaments, their desires, their tastes, and feelings. So in the context of marriage, if a wife loses her beauty, an aesthetic looks somewhere else for it. In the context of marriage, if a husband loses his ability to communicate for one reason or another, an aesthetic will look somewhere else for it. Or you can just flip those gender roles if, if it's uncomfortable. But the, the, big, the big idea here is that the aesthetics, while they think that they're being free and they're making a new choice based on what they want out of life, what Soren Kierkegaard says is, hold on, they're actually in bondage to things outside of them. Their wife's beauty or their husband's beauty, their wife's ability to communicate, their husband's ability to communicate is actually driving them in life. They're moving from one thing to the next to the next with no control over their subjectivity, no control over their desires for aesthetics, their temperament, and this is actually just a form of bondage and slavery. They're a slavery to their situations and experiences. They're not free beings at all. They're enslaved to their own temperaments. So the only way really to demonstrate our freedom, Soren would say, is to act contra to our subjective temperament. Act contra to our subjective feelings and our desires. And this is really, Soren Kierkegaard would really be upset with the authenticity movement as we have it today. You know, this movement is the general notion that if you do something without having 100% of your heart in it, you might as well be hung from the gallows because you're so inauthentic. You're a liar. You're a thief. 
But what Soren Kierkegaard would say is that the only actions of love that are authentic, if we think of actions of love are only authentic if their strong feelings of love are present, we'll inevitably be bad friends and even more terrible family members and, spou and spouses. Ain't nobody wanted to change what Penny put in her diaper yesterday. Ain't nobody wanted to do that. But we did it. You know, I did it. The authenticity notion is, is the hipper and cooler way to mark an aesthetic, really. A person who's more concerned with their experience of the world and is really enslaved to the outside circumstances and doesn't really have the power to overcome them. Now, I get it, but they're not free. It's convenient, but they're not really free. The only way to really display our freedom is to act contra what our internal desires are. The reality is, is that if love, the love that must hold us together is rooted in our subjectivity, loving and lasting relationships, they just can't last. Not only do our preferences change over the course of a life, but people do too. People change over the course of our life. I've been, I've been married to Christy for eight years now. She's lived with two men over the course of those eight years. Both of them have been me. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them have, I'm a very, very different person than the person whom she married. Very different person. All right, point three. This one has a part A and a part B. Actions of love provide the basis for emotions of love. Actions of love actually provide the basis for the, mo for the emotions of love. And, and this is where scripture really helps us see this most clearly. Um, so Augusta, can you throw up Ephesians, uh, Ephesians for us here? Oh, nice. Thanks for breaking up into a couple slides there. Avoid the light. I like that. Okay. Uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, his church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. There's a couple of things that I, I want to highlight from these, this passage, and this will close our time, really. Um, notice the command on the husband here. Notice the command on the husband. Love your wife. Husbands should love their wives. Paul says it twice. Love your wife. You can't command an emotion, can you? Of course not. You can't command an emotion. This is what's interesting about this statement. But, uh, and so, Scripture kind of tips its hand towards uh, solving this debate for us a little bit. You can't command an, an emotion. Jesus did the same thing when he showed up on the scene. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies. Is he saying have warm, fuzzy feelings towards your, em your enemies? No, he's calling for action. 
He's calling for actions of love towards enemies. And the challenge there is what are the actions of love that we've shown towards our enemies? Uh, I'll let that. We're not, we're, we're not working on that conviction today. Well, let's keep going. <laughs> and then Jesus said later, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't just, he's obviously not talking about have warm, fuzzy feelings for your neighbor. The example that he used was an action of a Samaritan picking up an unconscious guy on the side of the road, putting him on his donkey, getting him to a hotel and paying for his stay. It's an action. He couldn't possibly have warm fuzzies toward this guy. He was unconscious. And so scripture conceives of love as action as action. Now, it doesn't eliminate the, the romantic or the emotional side of love, but primarily, this is where it really starts. And as Christians, we hope it starts here. For God so loves the world that he had warm fuzzies about it. No, that he gave his one and only son. When God says that he loves us, it means that he's committed to us. It means that he has duties towards us. It means that he has obligations towards us. That's pretty insane. Are you starting to feel the scandal of who this God is? That we mere created creatures who rebel against him time and time again, that he feels duty towards us, obligation towards us. And we hope it's true because in our darkest selves that we know that we don't show anybody else, God looks at that and says, you know what? I may not feel warm fuzzies towards you right now, but I love you and I died for you while you were still sinning, it says in Romans 5. And it's when we fully grasp this, these actions of love that God has done in creating us, these actions of love that God has done in dying for us, these actions of giving us his Holy Spirit to dwell with us, we're actually inspired to emotional love at those moments. Actions of love can really drive emotional experiences of love. Now, that's not to say it doesn't work the other way around, but it usually doesn't work the other way around. Uh, usually what we do as a culture, sometimes we can conceive of, well, they will just change if I create these huge romantic experiences of love for them, that, that once they see how wonderful it could be, that'll inspire them of actions, to, actions of love towards me, and their duties and their obligations will follow. And while I agree with you that that does seem like it should work that way, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. It leads to a pampering and a spoiling of of partners usually, and that's actually where people start taking advantage of one another. We have to contend that actions provide the basis, actions of love provide the basis for emotions of love, okay? This brings me to part B, okay? What's really fascinating about this passage is when we start thinking about it through the lens of individualism. Um, <laughs> that notion that Ephesians 5 uh, screams here, to Melinda, who said, I just need to be more selfish in this relationship. Ephesians 5 would look at Melinda and say, an unequivocal yes. Got you again. Yes! You do need to be more selfish in your relationship. Look at any man and say, you need to be incredibly selfish in your relationship towards your other person, towards your other half. And it's really rooted in this understanding of being one flesh. Being one flesh is a redefinition of what the self actually is in marriage. Now, if you're here before and you've never heard of that concept of one flesh, you're probably confused right now. It's a confusing subject. If you're here right now and you're a Christian, um, 
you know that when people just cite the authority of one flesh, you're just supposed to nod on like a bobblehead, like, oh yeah, well, one flesh, one flesh. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, one flesh, yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what we do with this notion. But, so I'm going to ground it a little bit for you. Dave did that a little bit last week, but I want to bring it back around for us again, because a lot of us uh, weren't here last week. One flesh goes back to the creation experience of God. God created man, and he created woman, and he created them in his likeness. What does that mean? It means he created them, and part of that likeness is his very essence. And the essence of God is that he is three persons in one. We don't know quite how that works. We just know that throughout all of Scripture, we see three different persons of God, and they all say that they are one. It's a conundrum, it's, or whichever other word that you want to use. It's very confusing. We can't really even grasp it with our intellect. But part of God building humans in his likeness means that he extended that same essence to them the way that he is three in one, a married couple is two in one that there's open conversation, that there's an honest wrestling of what the problems are. This is what we see God doing time and time again. Jesus wrestling with God about what the real problems, problem with humanity is. <laughs> Talking to him openly about what's going on, saying, this is how I feel. I don't want to go to the cross, Father. That's pretty honest wrestling. But he leads towards the action of love anyways. Paul says to the husband that because of his one flesh essence, he has to be incredibly selfish. His big argument is that just as the husband tends towards his own physical needs, he's to tend towards the needs, the physical needs of his wife, the spiritual needs of his wife, the emotional needs of his wife. This is where traditional marriages broke down. They became bobbleheads for one flesh. Oh yeah, sure, one flesh, that's what we are. They didn't act it out that didn't actually live into it. When communication dies in a marriage, when honest problems aren't being dealt with, when a resigned fatalism enters into a traditional marriage, it becomes lifeless. It becomes inconsequential. It becomes something that you look at, just kind of shrug your shoulders at. Say, oh, well, that's not anything significant. I don't want that. And that's what our culture has largely done. They were committing the same sin of radical individualism. They saw themselves as two separate individuals, and so they couldn't talk to each other. It's really sad, okay? All right, now point four. One flesh is an instrument for the mission, not the end goal. One flesh is the instrument for mission, not the end goal. Okay, so we have to be careful here. There's actually pitfalls all over this subject. Everywhere we turn, there's a pitfall here, and here's one of them, is that marriages can be all about this one flesh when they identify it. It can be all about like, oh my gosh, we're one flesh. We can be open and honest and communicate, and we go on vacations together all the time. We do all these things for us to build each other up, and that's what what marriage can become all about. But we also have to hold this other element that we see come out in the creation narrative, and that's that God created man, created woman. He said they were one flesh. He built that into their very essence, and then he called them to something outside of their marriage, completely outside of the marriage, something that they could pursue together. 
He gave them dominion over the earth, it says. And and the shorthand for that is God packed all of this potential into this planet that we're standing on right now. And he gave it over to humans and he said, you guys go realize its full potential. Go create, realize its full potential. First that started in the garden, but now it's happened and, and spread over the entire world. This is the mission, the creation mandate is what it's called. We can skip over this little piece. And so what's crucial for marriage is to understand that the one fleshness they have has been given by God to them to be stewarded for something outside of their marriage. Just like God wasn't content to sit around with himself for eternity. He said, we're going to do something outside of us. We're going to do something called creation. We're going to work a wonderful story of redemption through it. God and his mission. And he invites us to be part of that here on the face of this earth. And so if you're married today, have you identified what God is calling your marriage to in the world? This is a very real application. Both the one flesh, what you're supposed to strive towards together, and the individual things that you are called to in this world. Because if not, marriage can be reduced to this loving, open relationship, which is great and beautiful and is amazing, but it can be reduced to what our authors call a lifestyle enclave. A lifestyle enclave. What is that? Dave talked about it a little bit last, a little bit last week, but this lifestyle enclave is, is really where people come together. They have the same interests, the same passions. They become completely insular, and they get segmented off from the rest of society because they're the same, essentially. Our culture right now exists as thousands of lifestyle enclaves of groups of five, ten people that get together and they're the same. And, and so it's, it's like the biggest point of bigger, better conversations is to break into other people's lifestyle enclaves. It's kind of our mission as a church, okay? But the tendency for marriages is to go towards this lifestyle enclave if, if they do not have the creation mandate in mind. And it actually ends up working towards competition with one another. It's very strange. Very strange when that kind of works itself out. But when... Um, When marriages see and start to steward this one fleshness in the world, that's when they can look at what each other have accomplished in the world and claim it as their own. It's when when Christy looks at the money that I uh, bring home and she says, that's my money. I empowered you to make that money. It's when I do the same with her. That's my money. I empowered you to make that money. It's it's nicer for me because she makes a little more, you know? It's really nice. It's also when I uh, take the kids night after night after night so that she can attend the public meeting after public meeting after public meeting that she has to because we believe that, she's, that God has called her to significant influence and civic responsibility for this city in the world. And so I rejoice at the opportunity to be able to, to empower her to do that. It's yesterday she takes the kids all day so that I can preach this sermon now and, and, and go out and, and fulfill what God has called me to in this world. She's preaching this sermon right now. I hope she's doing a good job. <laughs> it's like, do you see what that's saying? Uh, that's the, the big point here is we had a, a good understanding of one flesh in light of the creation mandate empowers couples to love one another well and pursue something significantly outside of the marriage uh, and not become all about date nights. All of those are important. Okay, this brings us to our last slide here. Um, the thing that would disturb Tocqueville the most today 
is the fact that family is no longer, that should say and, no longer an integral part of a larger moral ecology tying the individual to the community in the ways that I just talked about, Christy and I do, uh, the church and the nation. The family is the core of the private sphere whose aim is not to link individuals to the public world, but to avoid it as far as possible. Americans are seldom as selfish as the therapeutic culture urges them to be, but often, this is the big shocker here, this is the exclamation point part, the limit of their serious altruism is the family circle. Do you guys know what altruism is? That's pursuing, that's pursuing someone else's benefit over your own. In our society, that only happens in the marriage relationship. Loving someone is limited to... <laughs> the family unit in America, meaning no one makes sacrifices for anyone but those in their immediate families. What's the cure for this? Well, Paul's been talking about it the whole time in Ephesians 5. It's the church. He talked about marriage and church as synonymous things time and time again in that passage. We have to understand that human love and marriage, whether we're in a marriage or not, points us to the real union we have with Jesus and the real family that our hearts were made for, the church. That the profound mystery of the Trinity is actually extended towards all of us as we step out in what is the family of God. Because the reality is that we cannot do love and marriage without the church. That example of altruism of Christ to us and us to each other is what is the foundation of love from a man to a wife as well. So uh, there's a big topic, lots of, lots of hanging chads here, lots of rabbit trails um, that are probably kind of landed as unsolved for you in a lot of ways. And that's okay because this is a series on bigger and better conversations. Find someone and talk to them about it. That's one way you can have bigger and better conversations is to blast a lot of stuff out there, and see what happens. So I'm encouraged that I think we can do that with, with a topic like this, and I hope that we can do that here in our city. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, right now I just, uh, just want to pray uh, and ask that, that, you would, um, that you would take the pieces of this topic and this subject that we need to hear, and that you would help us uh, um, bring them into our hearts God, I pray that you would take the topics and, and the, the parts of this subject that we don't need to hear right now, that, that you would not make us needlessly anxious over them. Um, and God, right now, I just pray for all my friends here today that, that have been part of this radical individualism um, through no fault of their own. It's just what they've been born into and the authorities in their life have reinforced it within them, often ignorantly, God. I just pray that you would empower us to start grasping for a better way of your gospel and your church as outlined uh, in your word, God. And so we just pray all this in, in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.